This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Moshe Schwartz. Moshe is the president CEO of Etherton and Associates, <laughs> and uh, you know focuses his uh, work on the Hill and uh, legislation from procurement legislation, defense, DOD, all things uh, in that area. Moshe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, let's. Um, we do this every year uh, about this time. Perhaps maybe it's a little later than than in previous years, and that's. Um, you know, we're going to tackle the 2022 NDAA and what was in it. What are some of the key provisions that uh, folks in procurement world and, and the, the business of federal government need to pay attention to? And first of all, um, you know, one thing that I noticed, and I know you've, you, you noticed it as well, everybody did, is that the, that it wasn't signed by the president until uh, December 27th. Um, which I think is even later than is typical. Um, I think you've been tracking it, right? You, you indicated to me in our conversations before the show, but it's about 42 days on average after yeah. the after the end of the fiscal year into the next fiscal year when these things are done. That This one's almost, more than twice that long. Yeah, Roger, that, that's right. On average, since 1977, the NDA has been 42 days late, assuming late is when the new fiscal year starts. And as interesting, only eight times in all those years has it been before the fiscal year begins. So that it's late is not a surprise at all. But this year's was about 88 days late, right? So almost double the usual. Not unprecedented. In fact, it's better than last year's, right, if we want to compare it to that. But it was late. And so that does raise the question, why was it later than usual? And I think there are a couple of factors there. One was that the budget came over so so late from the Biden administration in their first year, which is also typical, although not as late as that first budget came over. So that was one factor. And I think the second factor was how the Senate floor went. Right. So the Senate actually didn't get off the floor this year. They were very late, um, substantially later than usual, and they just ran out of time. And so they had to scramble at the end, but the process just started late all around. Yeah. Is there was that just a question of getting organized? Um, with the new Senate and a 50-50 split and all that? Is that part of that? I think part of it was that, but it was also a new majority. And new majorities yeah. always have to get their their feet centered a little bit as they're moving on. And the closeness of the, the majority, right? This is a 50-50 uh, Senate. So that also takes issue, as does the crowded agenda this year. Right. They were trying to deal with things like China and build back better. And they were trying to deal with infrastructure. And so that made it a little bit more of a gem schedule than usual and perhaps pushed the NDAA further than many would have liked to see it happen. Yeah. And I guess there, in, there's the infrastructure bill, too, and all things COVID that, yeah. you know, all part of what the Hill and, and the new administration is focusing on. Uh, you could see that. So so anyway, you know. 
better late than never, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and people say, um, you know, uh, it, it, two years ago, people would say it would be nice to get to regular order again. I think people just want to get back to regular, irregular order again. That in itself would be nice. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's turn to the to the NDA itself. Can you talk about what you see or saw as the overarching, you know, themes, you know, drivers from a policy perspective uh, that are reflected in the NDA? Of course. And many of the things that we see reflected in the NDAA, we see reflected everywhere else. We see them reflected in executive orders. We see them reflected in the other legislation that is being proposed on the Hill or, or other statutes that have other legislation that's actually been enacted. Um, so it's fairly consistent across the board. The first one, of course, is China. Right? There is unanimity, um, if on nothing else, on China in Washington, and we saw that here. Um, another one is cybersecurity, which, again, is another issue that expands beyond just the NDAA. But a lot of effort on cybersecurity, which some of it is an outgrowth of the cyber solarium uh, that Congress had established. And while the cyber solarium is not going to continue in its past manifestation, the players who are involved in it have every intention and have declared their intention of continuing their efforts. So it's very likely to also be an issue that continues going forward. Industrial base, which is also an issue that we have seen raised in executive orders and beyond the NDA was a factor. And the one that would be more unique to the NDAA perhaps is uh, acquisition streamlining and more efforts for pilots on how to improve acquisition. And I'll put under that budget, for example, anything that improves how we do acquisition from a perspective primarily of speed, like the most, like the language in the NDAA establishing a budget commission, which is focused on acquisition and speed to deployment. All right. So, and those things are all, when you, you went through that list, they're all interrelated. I mean, really, right. They're all connect, whether cybersecurity goes at the end of the day to an industrial base and protecting capability, you know, China, a near peer, you know, competition, um, acquisition streamlining is all about getting, you know, stuff, you know, operational in a quicker manner in a quicker tempo to, you know, meet the challenges of moving forward. So you can see how those are interrelated. So how, well, I also on the themes wanted to ask you with the change in majority with the new administration, you know, were there, you know, particular priorities from a progressive perspective that, either made it into the NDA or did not? Yes. So it's very interesting this year in the NDAA. So the Senate was very close, right, 50-50. But even beyond that, because of the Senate rules where you generally need 60 votes, um, there's a lot less opportunity to have these more radical shifts, right, in sentiment. But in the House, that's a very different issue. Right? In the House, it's just majority. So when the Democrats took the House in the most recent election, if you followed what the House passed as their first shot, as it were, of the NDAA, there were a lot more um, progressive priorities and priorities of certain political ilk. So, for example, there was a lot more in there on the environment. There was a lot more in there on equity. There was a lot more in there on domestic sourcing. There was a lot more in there on perceived conflict of interest rules. Those got into the House version, but when the House and Senate started negotiating, most of those dropped out 
or were changed in focus to a report or a briefing or visibility into those issues. And you saw that change in the reflection of the votes, right? So while Democrats substantially supported the House version of the NDA when it first passed, when the final NDA came to the floor after this negotiation, it had more Republican support than Democrats. And I think that is a reflection of the dropping out, as it were, of some of the progressive priorities that were originally in the House bill. You didn't see that same shift in the Senate for the reasons that we mentioned. Right. So in another area I think you've you've um, cited is, uh, you know, a move to or a new, you know, management role for evidence based policymaking. Now, first of all, what is that? And and how, how did it come to be as something that was focused on in the NDA to the extent it was? Sure. So evidence-based policymaking is similar to how it sounds. It's crafting policy based on evidence or data and analysis. You know, um, And there is an OMB memorandum, a requirement for agencies to do evidence-based policy. But of course, that never extends or applies to Congress in and of itself through an OMB uh, memo. Um, but what happened here is... Congress approached reports and briefings differently than they have in the past. There have always been reports and lots of reports for GAO or for IGs or for the DOD saying report on this project or give us that data. But what they did this time, which was very interesting, is they said on a number of occasions, we want you to provide us with a report that is your strategy for collecting and analyzing data to determine how effective this pilot or program is going. And that is different. And in a few instances, they actually said, and you cannot start this pilot until you provide us with your strategy for gathering data and analyzing that data. They also said on a couple of, in a couple of instances or more, we want you to weigh in on when you, whether you think this program should continue, be extended, or should be ended. And so they, they've started this conversation on data. Now, I think it will take time for this to happen, right? Because this is not an easy thing to do. And, and Congress and DOD are going to have to get on the same page and de- determine what our criteria and how to have these conversations. Right. But it definitely is a step in this direction. The concern that one could raise is it also gives DOD perhaps un- unintended inability to never launch some of these programs, right? So to the extent that Congress says you can't start a pilot until you give us your data strategy, if DOD never gives them a data strategy, they can't start that pilot. And sometimes that might be an outcome that DOD is not so upset about. Right. Right. Why why would that be? Well, if it's a pilot that they don't want to do, right? Right. If it's something that was not their idea and they don't necessarily Somebody else is, right. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. That's that's logical. That's common sense. So, yep. um, hey, Moshe, we're up on the break. So when we come back, uh, you know, and start diving in, into a uh, a little bit more detail about what some of the key provisions in the NDAA, and uh, try to go go through those topics, those major themes, uh, one by one, and identify some of the key provisions that you think are going to uh, be impactful over the, the next year or in in the future period. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz from Etherton and Associates. And we're talking about the fiscal year 22 NDAA. And uh, Moshe, I know it's interesting, you know, with you can get real geeky here of the procurement and, you know, and actually being a government contracts lawyer. But, um, you know, I know there's there's some technical amendments related to the transfer reorganization of the defense acquisition statutes um, that I think, um, I guess, you know, that people should pay attention to. And we can maybe talk about it a little bit more as we go through some of the details. But is that is that fair to say? Oh. Absolutely. And it is something to be aware of. And, and thank you for the opportunity to get geeky. I don't get it very much. And, oh, I, and okay. I appreciate that a lot. Um, but what happened at the start of this year, it really predated um, the January 1st, but all the acquisition statutes in Title 10 were redesignated. And so what that means practically is you're, if you're talking to somebody and they say other transaction authority, 10 USC 2371B. Right. Be aware that is not the statute number anymore. Right. So all those statute numbers, be it Truth and Negotiations Act or Competition Act or whatever it is that you knew and you referred to, those have been redesignated and reordered. The reason for that was to try to get a more logical order of things and to clean it up a little bit. And frankly, to make sure we don't have something like 10 USC 2371 B and C and D and E and make room for all of it. Right. And I also think part of it was also to set the stage for a more comprehensive review and then start, you know, as I tell my kids, before you start figuring out what you want to keep and what you want to change, figure out what you have. And so it was cleaning the room up before you start doing a more comprehensive acquisition effort. Um, so I think that was part of it as well. But just put it on your radar so you know that that's changed. Right. And another thing, too, I always found like the notes, like all that. I mean, you, there's all this stuff that's like buried in the notes to the statute that you have to know about it because it impacts, you know, the application of the law. And um, that's that, you know, I found that. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah, I think you're you're right spot on in terms of, you know, cleaning things out, figure out what you got first, then figure out how you're going to organize it. So. Um, that's something to watch, definitely. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about some other uh, key provisions uh, in the NDA. And first, I guess we'll we'll start with the the one you mentioned first, and that is the you know the bipartisan sort of focus on China and the you know near peer competition with 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 China. Yeah, and I, and I think everything is about China, right? The cybersecurity right. in reality is about China. The industrial base in reality is about China. Even the budget review is about China, because if it wasn't for the concerns of China, I'm not sure how many of these things we would be pursuing. You'd still have 60, 50, 60, 70 acquisition provisions, because what's an NDAA with that, without that many provisions? Right. Um, but you might not have seen that same, that same focus. So the first thing I would mention with this is there is this whole debate by America versus by allies, right? And normally it would be by America versus not, but I think China influences all of that, right? Um, because, you know, the way I look at it is there's four tiers here. There's, are you going to buy domestic, right? Then are you going to buy from our close allies? Third is, will you buy from anybody else if, if the allies don't have it? And the fourth tier is, and you shouldn't buy from and, you should, and that usually is the four people, uh, four countries of China, Russia, 
Iran and North Korea. And that is very prominent in the NDAA. So as often as they talk about domestic procurement, they talk about don't buy from China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Um, so that's the first thing. And to expand that a little bit on industrial base and visibility, one thing that they did is they took this approach, and I'm looking at a few sections right now, where one is they said, we want you to modernize your process for integrity in the industrial base. That happens to be Section 841. And how do you do that? We want you to map the supply chains and digitize them so you can real time get real information on what your supply chain is. Once you've done that in Section 842, they basically say, and now think about restricting certain purchases from certain sources. Once you get visibility, start thinking about what you should buy from who, because you have a map of it. And then they go into a number of sections. It could be 802, it can be 847. There's a few that says, and by the way, DOD, and they said this in section 847, DOD and State Department, we want you to develop and implement a plan on how you are going to reduce reliance on a lot of things, on services, on supplies, on materials from sources in China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And you see that very often. So it's understand your supply chain and your industrial base, make strategic decisions because you can't bring everything back to the United States. Congress has come to that conclusion. We can't reshore everything. Right. Um, and then wean off or decouple from these countries. And you are seeing that. You can, you can see that with the China legislation. You see, you see a subtext of this with Ukraine, right? And what's going to happen there. Um, and some reimposition over the last few years of of uh, of um, some statutes on Iran, right? So that is that big picture of industrial base and China. So, in reality, there is. I mean, it is really about China. I don't. I mean, I don't know how much we buy from the other three. You know, I mean, maybe we don't know, and that's part of the problem. I think that's to my in my mind that's got to be a huge challenge because you know it's so ubiquitous or just the you know the the supply chain and what's been built you know with manufacturing based in China do do we really have a sense uh, at all right now about how inner you know what our reliance is in certain areas so I think we have general senses like we know how reliant we are generally on China for rare earths, as an example, we know how reliant the economy at large is on printed circuit boards. So while we may not in a particular program be able to say X percent of the circuit boards are from China, we know that writ large, when you're buying commercial circuit boards, many of which will get into these programs, there's a huge reliance, right? A huge right, reliance. Right. So we do have that visibility where I think this gets challenging from a legislative and policy perspective is once you make the decision, we need to stop our reliance on China. If that's the direction you're going in, the question is, there are two questions. One is how, right? You can take an approach that Senator Cotton has taken sometimes and say, you're not going to buy from China, right? right? But if we're reliant on them, who's getting hurt the most? And it's not so clear that it's China, it could be us, right? Or if we're telling China we're going to stop buying from you, they may take certain actions that will hurt us more. 
Um, or you can take an approach that I think is more the approach Schumer has been taking and, and others in the China bill, which is, well, let's invest here and grow the capability before we just stop buying from China, because if they're the only providers of this in some ways, or overwhelmingly the provider, we don't have choices. Right. right? right. So I think that is the, um, the first question. And then the second question, I think, is how much do you want to decouple from China? I don't think there is much debate that critical strategic resources that we need, you know, both for our economy or for um, weapon systems or other defense programs, we need to know that we won't have an interruption of supply. What about those other things? Because there is economic trade. You know, we sell a lot of soybeans to China. Do we want to stop buying Rubik's cubes from China, for example? Right. And what is that level? Are we trying to really decouple economies or or are we trying to ensure the integrity and safety of our economy and defense? And those are very different questions. And I think sometimes they get conflated. Right. So and that thing, listening to you, the thing that too, it seems to me to be a challenge is, you know, the the scale of it or in a certain sense, it's isn't it? It's kind of one thing to say that the Department of Defense of federal government, we don't want to be reliant on, you know, China or whether it's rare earth minerals or whatever. But in a certain sense, how can you do that if you're not creating the case or this economies of scale that it ripples throughout the entire economy, right? I mean, that's where you get, you know, segments of industry dedicated to working just with the federal government. Like I almost think back to the old days where there were, you know, government specifications for ashtrays or whatever, that, you know, there were a specific subset of small number of companies that would make that ashtray year in and year out. And then when you went to commercial item and no longer had a spec for it, and you just got an ashtray because that's what it was. You got, um, you know, you had more competition, lower prices, but you also lost people making it here or whatever, right? I mean, I is yeah. that, is I that a good analogy? I think that's exactly right. And I think it almost leads back to one of the first questions that you had about evidence-based policy, which is as we pursue, pursue these approaches to China and the other countries, to what extent is it being driven by a true analytical evidence-based policy structure or how much is it rhetoric that is driving more or is this something that should swing back? Right. right. I think right. that is a question like, and, and we'll just talk about the uh, chips for a moment. Right. Why don't we hold it right there? We can talk about this perfect place. We're up on the break. When you come back, we'll we'll talk about the chips. Uh, my guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is uh, president of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz, uh, president of Etherton Associates. We're talking about the FY22 NDAA, giving an overview of it. And um, we talk a lot about China and and sourcing. And, you know, yeah, I really liked your, you know, you're walking through the four tiers, like buy America, buy Allied, buy from other folks when you just not buy Allied or buy America, and then lastly, don't buy <laughs> from, yeah. right? So that's a great way to look at it um, uh, from a decision-making perspective. But uh, when we ended the segment, you were about 
to talk about microchips, something I think on everybody's mind, especially those looking for new cars. So, yes, <laughs> the, the chips and the circuit boards, we all know the um, the bottleneck is it is in logistics for the chips. Right. And a lot of them come from from Asia at large and a lot of them from China. Right. And circuit boards, very similar. There's language in this NDAA. It's Section 851 that modifies restrictions on acquiring circuit boards. So I think the first question is, as we approach these questions, is what is the risk that we as a country, both economically and from a national security standpoint, um, are willing to bear? Right. And the second question is, and this is a question that all industries always have to struggle with, is what is the make-buy equation? Right. And we have to struggle with that as a nation. And in other words, what I mean by that is when you need something, at what point is it more efficient and effective to buy it from somebody else? Or at what point do you want to bring it in house and make it ourselves? Right. And right. so I think those two are together. Right. So the risk analysis could be we want to make 10 percent in case there is some massive disruption and we have enough capacity to limp along until it opens up. And I don't mean limp along, but enough to to manage a crisis. If it happens, it could be 60 percent or it could be, well, we need 10 percent domestically. And I'm including in domestic Canada and in theory, Mexico, just because geographically they're so close that um, it, it's there's not a disruption issue as you are from anywhere overseas. So you might say we need 10% in a geographic continuity. We need 50% from close allies that we know will never try to use their production to harm us. You know, like the way you might see Germany reliant on Russia, Russia right now with right. gas, right? And we might say, and we can take a 40% risk on a, a China or, you know, a Pakistan or a country that we might not be as comfortable with. At the same time, we also have to look at the other risk, right? If there is, and we see this with, with oil, actually, right? And when there's a, a hurricane off of Louisiana, because that's where the refining of gas is concentrated, that has huge ramifications nationwide. So we also want to make sure we're not too concentrated domestically in one particular region, for example, and there are still diversified sources for buying it globally. Right, right? And that's right. one challenge for one argument for some level of globalization, regardless of, of that. So these are the issues that I think are really hard to manifest. And the make buy really comes down to in some ways money, right? So we're talking about tens of billions of dollars to develop the chip capacity that exists at the cutting edge plants around the world that isn't in the United States anymore. Right. And, it, but it's, you know, and I guess, People are making those equations now. You hear these press reports about a you know, new facility in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. They just, Intel just announced they're doing something in Ohio, right? I mean, there is investment. I guess the question is, you know, from a from that risk profile perspective, what's the right percentage or capability in this country versus, you know, buying it from, from someplace else, whether it's Canada, Mexico, or, you know, or... Yes, and I think that actually goes back to a more fundamental question, if we could elevate this, sure. which is, to what extent should the United States have a comprehensive national industrial policy? This is not something that we have had historically, or at least not in recent years. Yep. Right? There's yep. been a lot more 
laissez-faire, capitalism, globalization, let the markets decide. And this whole discussion now seems to be a rethinking about that. Not that we should nationalize everything. I'm not saying that. No, no. Right. But what are the right and left parameters of this conversation? And to what extent should there be um, government industry cooperation or or, um, joint efforts? And how much should the government guide? And that's really what some of this conversation is about as well. It's not just make buy, but what is the role of government vis-a-vis industry in the United States and globally? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I must think about, I mean, it's almost because you know, we talk about laissez-faire capitalism and let the markets drive things. But we're not, you know, our near-peer adversary doesn't, that's not their model, right? It's mercantilism, right? It's government and industry closely aligned in a certain sense, working to a particular national approach, right? Which given the scale and the potential there, you know, kind of dry, it seems to me drives us to have to think about that to your point. Yes. And I think one thing to be cautious about, and I think we've had undertones of this throughout our discussion today is to avoid overreaction. Yeah. Right. Because I remember a number of years ago when I was younger, and I don't think this is dating myself too much, although my kids will say it is, is reading those stories about how the Japanese economy is going to overtake the U.S. economy because of their model. And it didn't. So I think we should, the depth of the United States economy and power, I would say, is... um, Slightly exaggerated, or as Mark Twain would say, it's been exaggerated. At the same point, our economic model and our government model is not the same as it was 200 years ago because we evolve and adapt. And to maintain American economic and military might and vibrance requires us to adapt. So I think that's that's another level of all of this is to not overreact because just because China is doing something doesn't mean that is the right way in the long term. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that the status quo of mercantilism or or other things that we have done um, for years doesn't need to be refreshed and adapted. Right. I think to me, just my view is like you have to, whatever you're going to do, you have to, the fundamentals of uh, a mark, a economy that promotes innovation (laughs) Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's got to be central to it, right? Because um, that's how you advance, right? You, you you can't create a model that you know hinders the ability of people to come up with new ideas, what, whatever that may be. And I, I don't, I'm just kind of articulating. And it seems to me, you know, venture capital is is a is critical. And there's not any country in the world that has you know the venture capital ecosystem that that the United States does. And I think that's going to be continue to be fundamental, frankly, to, you know, you know, innovation from a technology perspective across the board. So that's a pretty high theoretical conversation. Moshe, why don't we get back to a little bit? Can you talk a little about in the NDA, you know, some of the stuff about acquisition streamlining that, um, you know, for example, is that, you know, any, anything more on OTAs or is, or is it about reporting on OTAs? That's a big focus these days. And I know that market has grown significantly over the last three or four years. 
Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So yes, the answer in the short is yes. Let's start with OTAs, as you mentioned. So there's a, there are a couple of provisions here with OTAs. One is asking for more data, particularly as it relates to consortia. But I think it is important um, not to look at that language as an effort to rein in OTAs, but what it is on its face, which is an effort to get more visibility into consortia, and not just consortia, by the way, FFRDCs and other things as well. Because there's another section that says, as it relates to OTAs, DOD, we want you to provide us feedback on a slew of areas where maybe we should expand the use of OTAs, including using it for um, production or services, even without a prototype. Right. Yeah. Or for services generally, which is not the case now. So uh, if I were to look at the language from Congress overall on OTAs, I would look at it as Congress saying, we want some more visibility and data. So primarily DOD, I don't, do not believe this is a knock on consortia or industry. I think primarily it's DOD, get more visibility because you, frankly, you should have it and we want it as your board of directors. But we also want to have a discussion of whether we should be opening up the aperture and they're setting up more action for potentially next year's NDA by asking DOD to weigh in on these specific questions. They also related, talked about commercial items. Hey, Moshe, we're up on the break. So when we come back, we can talk about commercial items. And uh, then also talk about um, where uh, CMMC is going and some some of the interesting aspects that, that play out in the procurement system as well. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Moshe Schwartz, president of Atherton and Associates. And Moshe, you uh, you're about to talk about commercial items when we took the break in context of the NDA and what they did. So, yes, thank go you. Ahead. <laughs> and, and it's related to a lot of the things that we've been talking about. They basically said, DOD, what are the impediments to doing this more? We need to do more of this, right? So you could think of commercial items as one of the original streamlined acquisition processes, right? Now, it's not as streamlined as it used to be. So it's the semi-streamlined acquisition process of commercial items, perhaps. Um, But they're saying we need to do more. Should we open up the aperture for OTAs? Why aren't we doing commercial items? And they had a a few other uh, pilot programs in this NDAA. They also did something else that's related to this. So on the front end of commercial items and OTAs and some of these pilots, it's how do we buy these things better? They also have language in here on do we have the right systems? I'm specifically thinking about Section 146, right? So what Section 146 does is it says, DOD, we want you to review basically your entire portfolio of systems, fielded major weapon systems. And tell us, right, how do you manage risk to ensure that your weapon systems are meeting current and emerging threats? And how do you decide when and how to modernize or replace? And I think what this is trying to get to is, you know, the, those scenes that we've seen from movies where the Germans send in their tanks and then they're, they're sent, um, the other forces send out the cavalry, right? How do we ensure that we're not sending out the cavalry, as it were, to meet the panzer divisions, Right. And so they're saying, take this whole look and how do we think about this, right? Right, right. Have a system for 50 years and expect that anymore to be the right system 50 years from now. Maybe the platform is, 
but how do we modernize and update and how do we keep it right? And they didn't only do that with weapon systems. They did that with IT systems as well. They have a number of provisions and language in the report that says, get rid of duplicative, duplicative IT systems, right? Consolidate your IT systems as it relates to, as it relates to um, the budget, right? And give us a plan on how you're going to phase out software and systems that are legacy, just like weapon systems. They use legacy for both. How do we keep things moving and updated in a regular fashion? I'll tell you how we don't do it. We don't do it by 15-year programs, right? right? Um, which is how we do many things now. So, and I think, go ahead. So I was going to ask you a motion. So does that, you know, the eliminating duplicative IT systems, looking at them and you know, not 15 years program, is this like, see, I, 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 see, I see a forecast of more, more and more cloud. I mean, not just yes. about the capability of it, but but the way they're directing the management to go. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And if you look at the president's budget, um, one thing they do is they um, project a lot more spending on cloud, right? DOD seems to be absolutely going into the direction of cloud. Right. So you had, and you, I interrupted you. What was your next thought? Oh, I was just going to say, so be it weapon systems or IT, Right. They want to make sure we're up to date. And this feeds in a little bit to what we're talking about with commercial items and OT, which is we just need to move faster. And it's not just in the acquisition side, but it's on the O&M side and the maintenance side and always thinking forward. In fact, one thing I would love to see um, is, you know, we talk about the procurement and then we talk about O&M and we talk about operation and support. I would love to see the operation and support term be changed. It's really operations, support, and upgrade. Because day one that you field an IT system, day one that you field a weapon system, you need to already be thinking about that upgrade. And we have to get out of that mentality of it's deployed, fire and forget. It is fire and think about the next one. Right. And that's, you know, in the private sector, commercial, like I'm just, when you say that, I think about my iPhone, right? And And the upgrades you get from, you know, Apple, you know, all the time trying to make the product better. That's from their perspective and that's in their commercial interest. If you're a requirements holder of a government thing, right? I mean, you got to create that somehow the ecosystem seems to be, be the best of both worlds. If you got, you know, the user thinking about upgrades continually, but on the flip side, the, the, you know, the person, the company or whatever providing it constantly thinking about upgrades too. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I buy an iPhone and I'm like, after a year, I have to upgrade it already. But, but yeah, in some cases, yeah, particularly when talking about IT systems, you do. In fact, one of the challenges in patching some of the systems that DOD and other agencies have when it comes to cybersecurity is how well their systems are. So IT modernization is not just about more efficient and effective, and it is more efficient and effective, don't get me wrong, but it's also about making sure you can patch. DOD, uh, I'm sorry, GAO put out this report that talked about some legacy IT systems that had components that are 50 years old. And, yeah. and that just causes all types of problems. So, you know, TMF, Technology Modernization Fund, we need that. That is not an option anymore. Right. And, and you know, <laughs> to your point about the phones, I'm thinking – not just they come up with new models, but even in the context of whatever you have, there's constant upgrade, upgrades to the operating system. And I have the same phone for the last 
three or four years, call me old fashioned. I keep them for a long time, but the capability of the phone and what it does for me has just improved over time because they're constantly operating, up, upgrading the operating system. So real quick, we're getting down to about three or four minutes left in the show. I want to ask you just quickly, can you sum up anything else with regard to uh, cybersecurity? I mentioned CMMC at the end of the last segment. And, you know, then there's, you know, the FedRAMP. Um, where does that stand? Uh, why wasn't it included in the NDAA? A couple things on that. And then I'd like to ask you real quickly at the end about the America Competes Act. Absolutely. So um, FedRAMP wasn't included in the NDAA. Either was the uh, cyber threat information collaboration or cyber notification as it were, uh, those were not excluded because of ideological reasons, but really more of the time just ran out. So there's a high likelihood that that will happen in this Congress, which would be, of course, this year, actually, because the Congress ends at the, at the election at the end of the year. Um, so it would be more surprising if those did not become legislation than if they did become legislation, with the big caveat that who knows what will become legislation, because everything's been late, as we talked about. Sure, so sure. Trying to get things moving. Um, but but it's coming, right? And and that goes back to a conversation that we had before. It's all coming. Um, CMMC, the goal is to have at the end of the year, final rules and other rules and regulations coming out. That is coming down the pike. Um, the only caution I would say, and this isn't about CMMC, but I'll take this, in this for 30 seconds in this direction, is CMMC 889. And then we need those. And I got it. But then when you start putting all these other regulations that are coming down the pipe, be it on environment, be it on, on equity, be it on um, Buy America or all these other things, I fear that we're potentially strangling our defense industrial base to the point where our economic industrial base is doing very well. But we are shrinking what the Defense Department and the government can leverage because people are just like, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore. And so right. that is my concern that. The important regulations just become another nuisance as a pope because we have too many of them. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair concern that goes back to the age-old issue of government unique requirements versus you know you know commercial item contracting a lot of contracting in a lot of ways. So we have about a minute left. You know, um, the future, the American Competes Act, and then the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, the two versions, one Senate, one House. Um, yeah, where do you where, do you think that gets done this year, or I think conference? Yeah, I think it has to get done this year. You know, this has been a, a, a priority of Senator Schumer's majority leader, right? And the House is set to vote on something uh, this week. The question will be whether they can get enough votes in the Senate, right? Um, and th there are two factors there. The two factors will be, will the House be willing to jettison some of the provisions that Republicans are complaining about, like uh, authorizing $8 billion for an environmental fund, which has raised some Republican ire? Because when the Senate version, the USIC, as you said, the U.S. Um, Innovation Competition Act passed, it had Republican support, right? Um, but there are provisions in the House that may erode that support in the Senate side. So that's fact. Fact number one or question number one on whether it can get across the vision. The finish line is whether there will be provisions in there that the Senate, that the senators who are Republican just can't sign on to or won't sign on to. And the second one is just the overall political environment. Right. Um, and we know the political environment, but now just throwing a Supreme Court nominee 
right? And that just creates a whole new level of potential partisanship that will emerge. And will that get in the way? The third issue is floor time, but I don't think floor time is really the issue because it's a priority of a number of people. So I think they would find the floor time. All right, great. Thanks, Moshe. And on that note, we do have to wrap up the show. I'll have you, we'll have you back in a couple months. We can talk about you know, what the midterm elections will mean or not mean from a policy perspective, both in the current Congress and potentially in the future. My guest today has been Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.